International medical aid has begun arriving in India, where record daily numbers of new coronavirus infections continue to push its healthcare system to capacity. US President Joe Biden prepares to give his first prime time address to a joint session of Congress ahead of his 100th day in office on Friday. And why has the City of London proposed to transform some of the office space in its square mile into homes? Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Wednesday the 28th of April and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto and joining us today from Midori House in London to guide us through some of the day's top news stories are Monocle's news editor Chris Chermack and Monocle 24's Marcus Hippie. Chris, Marcus, great to have you both with us on the programme today and Marcus, today's been a bit of a landmark day for you there in London. Funny that you mentioned, that's true, actually. I got vaccinated. I got my first COVID-19 vaccine earlier this morning. Um, it's It's been surprisingly emotional, I have to say. I was just saying earlier to someone that it's 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 quite astonishing, the speed, how quickly all this has happened and what an achievement it is, considering that, you know, here in London, we, we only truly got nervous and concerned about that pandemic about 40 months ago. And here I am. I've been vaccinated already, and I know exactly when I'll be vaccinated for the second time in about 12 weeks time. Well, congratulations, Marcus. It is a special day. And Chris, how about you? How's the week shaping up for you there in London? I'm trying to contain my jealousy at Marcus for getting <laughs> his, his first vaccination shot. Still, still waiting on my end. But having said that, uh, personally had a couple of days off. So that was quite nice. Enjoyed the good weather, played some tennis, as all our listeners know very well. It's one of my favourite things to do since uh, lockdown has come to somewhat of an end. So feeling good and otherwise we're sort of focused in on the next uh, editions of Monaco, particularly the, uh, the June edition uh, coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks. Well, Chris and Marcus, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Well, we begin today's programme in India, where more than 200,000 people have now died from COVID-19 and more than 300,000 new infections are being recorded every day, although there is a broad assumption that both of those figures are lower than the actual number. Well, in response, India's government earlier today opened up vaccination eligibility to every adult aged 18 and over. And on today's edition of The Briefing, we spoke to Dr Shruti Kapila at the University of Cambridge in the UK, who returned from India at the end of last month. I think the mood is incredibly desperate. It's also angry. And there is widespread helplessness. So up until, say, about a month ago, people were beginning, it was on the rise. And when I was there in late March itself, and you knew people who were getting infected, friends and the like, or family members. But now it's a step change in the sense that many more people now know people who are dying or are struggling for life. And the problem is an absolute disaster in terms of delivery of public health essential services and not just vaccination, but things like oxygen, hospital beds. So having had a year to prepare for capacity, which actually showed signs of creating that capacity last summer, it's all kind of withered away. 
Dr. Shruti Kapila speaking to us from Cambridge in the UK a little earlier today. Marcus, the international push to send medical support to India is well underway. Countries like the US, the UK, Saudi Arabia, Canada and even neighbouring Pakistan are among those to have either sent medical supplies or have vowed to do so. Um, Are we likely to see more of that kind of support coming in the days ahead to India, do you think? I would imagine, I would imagine so, considering that there must be a lot of public pressure facing politicians now to, to help India and, and, and do something. We've seen all, all this rather shocking footage from India. We've seen pictures of people begging for oxygen when they're struggling to breathe. We've been seeing bodies being burned in car parks when there's no space for them elsewhere. And it's an absolute disaster over there. And looking at the discussion taking place here in the UK, for example, the UK government has been insisting that there is there are no surplus jabs to help India. And, and, and there's there's a lot of people who are feeling a bit angry about that. And and I'm wondering about this this myself, obviously, as I mentioned earlier. I was vaccinated today myself. I'm a healthy man in his 40s. And, and looking at what's happening in India, I'm wondering if I, I really do need the vaccination more than they do. At the same time, as an example of, of the pressure we're seeing in the UK alone, there's about 6,000 doctors now of Indian origin who've been writing to the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson requesting further medical equipment to be sent to India as a matter of urgency. So just looking at what's happening in the UK alone, you understand the scale of the pressure and, and how much need there is to, to see something happening, to see something done. And another argument that all leaders probably realise is that in the end, we are all in the same boat. This pandemic is not over before it's over in every single country. And and when you just look at the number of people living in India and you look at the traffic that we have been seeing to India and from India, you realise that the sooner we see India getting the situation improved when we see the number of new COVID cases decline over there. That is an absolute matter of urgency and, and we can't return to normal life in other countries either before we see India get better. And Chris, as Marcus alluded to there, the UK government has said that there are no surplus vaccines in the UK to send to India right now. We've seen US President Joe Biden say that I think 60 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine will be sent from the US, but but not right now, not until a, a little short while from now. Do you think that the assistance that has been pledged so far is happening quickly enough, just given how severe the situation across India is right now? Well, as as Marcus was talking about the situation and what we're seeing, I think it, it's clear in, in one simple way uh, to say, of course, it's it's not enough. If you just want to ask that simple question, you know, it's it, it's something that so many countries so many of us around the world in a way have been have been dealing with uh, because you feel like many countries you know have been at the epicenter of the crisis at some point and particularly when they were right in the heat of it there wasn't really you know it was it was always going to get worse before it got better and so in that sense it's just a sad thing to see that you know you can you can promise as much help as you want um, at this stage in the crisis, but the facts remain that over you know two hundred thousand people have died uh, in India from this, and it is going to continue to get worse over the coming weeks before it gets better. There, there is some positive news if you want to you know on the topic of whether it's enough or not. The head of the the Serum Institute of India, who uh, you know is one of the leading institutes that's that's producing vaccines 
has said with some of the help they're getting, particularly from the U.S., that some of the production problems they've had for one vaccine, for example, Covishield, have been lifted so they may be able to speed up the vaccinations, which is something where India is also, you know, been actually quite slow. Less than 10% of the population has been vaccinated, which is really quite striking when you also think that they've been exporting Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccines to other countries as well. They've been participating in the UN program uh, for developing countries to to receive the vaccines. So they've done their part in some ways, despite the fact that now there is this very serious crisis happening, of course, in India. And one final way maybe to look at it, I'd just point out when one says, is it enough? Of course, the key moment would have been, you know, before we reached this point in the crisis. And it was interesting to read, you know, to frankly, just take the United States, you you can argue it's it's all well and good that they're offering support now, now that, you know, over 50% of the American population also has been vaccinated and they have capacity. Earlier this year, you know, even the Biden administration, it must say, um, invoked the Defense Production Act to prevent certain materials or at least to prioritize uh, U.S. companies, U.S. US pharmaceutical companies receiving the raw materials they needed to produce vaccines um, ahead of other countries. So they took steps um, that actually restricted the access that India had to the kind of raw materials that they also needed in order to produce more of the vaccine. So is it enough? You know, certainly not, certainly not at this point. And if you look at what's happened in the past, um, you know, you could ask the UN as well, would certainly say, yes, there's been some effort to get vaccines to developing countries, but it's hard to say it's been enough. Well, we will be monitoring the situation in India in the days to come here on Monocle 24. And next here on the late edition in Washington, D.C. later this evening, President Biden will give his first primetime address to a joint session of Congress ahead of his 100th day in office on Friday. And Chris, to begin with you, what do you expect President Biden to say in the House of Congress a little later tonight? Well, Thomas, this one's a bit of an unusual one. Most most years, the State of the Union, uh, as our listeners will probably know, is held in January or February. And it's this sort of review of the year by a U.S. president and an unveiling of their agenda for the upcoming year. The first year of a presidency is, is always unusual. It's not actually called the State of the Union. It's more a, a special address to Congress. And typically, it's more like a laying out of your platform, a bit of a campaign speech, a bit of a, you know, what what you've done in a very short period of time, you know, your first month or so in office. This speech is kind of a bit of both because Biden has purposely delayed his speech a little bit. It's later than most presidents give it. It's at his 100-day mark, basically. And so that's kind of a chance for Biden to tout some of his accomplishments that he's already had. Uh, So there will be talk of things like uh, vaccinations, which are, of course, going very well, and so progress in confronting the pandemic. There will be talk of the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill uh, that was passed by Congress in a bid to to boost economic growth in the country, as, as well as a number of other things that that bill tried to achieve. So there will be some of that. And then at the same time, there'll also be this kind of drumming up of support and highlighting many policy proposals that are already out there and waiting for action by lawmakers, by by the House and by the Senate. 
For example, he's already unveiled his uh, infrastructure plan, another $2 trillion, $2 trillion in spending. There's an immigration plan that he's already detailed and laid out there that he will be highlighting. There's a police reform bill that's sitting in the U.S. Senate already passed by the House. He'll be highlighting that in particular, um, of course, after the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, so those are some of the examples of things that he's going to be highlighting this in this speech where he's really just trying to push people, push lawmakers um, to, to, move for, to, move for, to move forward and kind of drum up public support for those so that lawmakers feel, you know, that they feel more uh, inclined to, to do what he wants. Um, and then finally, there's the, the, the final element of this is going to be something new, although the administration has laid it out um, just ahead of his speech. And that is the uh, what's called the American Families Plan. It's another $1.8 trillion spending bill in this case. Um, and it's really kind of an extra component. You have the infrastructure plan that I mentioned on the one hand, and then you have this American Families Plan that's focused more on things like health care, expanding health care, and child care in particular. It mandates parental leave, um, for example, in the U.S., which would be something very new, which we're very used to here in Europe. Um, it offers two years of free community college to anyone who wants it in the U.S., it offers additional financial support uh, for education, uh, higher education for lower income families. And so those are some of that's that's one thing that he's going to be specifically unveiling, if you will, in this speech, detailing for the first time to the American people that he hasn't talked about really up until now. Um, and, you know, otherwise, uh, I'd just say that some people have focused on there, there's, of course, going to be a, a talk about uh, unity, a bit of a change in tone after the last four years. This is, as I say, an annual speech. It'll be his first State of the Union type speech. So he's going to try and inject some of that talk as well, um, as he already did uh, during the campaign, of course, for president and in his inauguration speech, just kind of doubling down on that that rhetoric of it's it's time to come together and pass an ambitious agenda uh, for for the American people. There will, of course, also be a Republican response uh, that will be done by Senator Tim Scott. Um, that will come afterwards. That's also a tradition of these speeches. So it'll be interesting to see what they have to say and what they react to in particular as well. Generally, the final thing i just say is the, these things are very much on high and pomp and, and ceremony, uh, not that much in terms of strong detail, but they're still really a good, you know, they give you a good sense of what Joe Biden is thinking, where he wants to go uh, with this year and kind of where he feels he is at this 100 day mark. Well, on today's edition of The Globalist, we heard from the former Republican congressman, Zach Womp, who explained why, in his mind, the president has struggled to bring a new era of bipartisanship during his first 100 days in office. Partisan things is what has gotten the country so divided. Something's wrong here when only one party, no one on the other side, and there's no effort to get bipartisan support. What does that mean? That means that somebody's rigging the system to their advantage. That's the way people perceive this. So I'd say the first hundred days is mixed at best because the president had some goodwill that this is a new beginning. You can't change the government in a partisan way. 
You just can't do it. All good reforms, all major bills need bipartisan support so the country sees us working together. And it's been a long time since the country saw the Congress work together. The former Republican Congressman Zach Womp there speaking to us on today's edition of The Globalist. Uh, Marcus, President Biden marks his first 100 days at the White House on Friday. Uh, what struck you most about this first chapter of his presidency? I think it's it's just been simply the speed that he's had when he's been trying to restore so many things Donald Trump did over the last four years. How quickly the US returned to the Paris Climate Pact and and how, 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 how efficient he's been during these days if you look at some other achievements as well. Just looking at, you know, we talked about COVID-19 pandemic and, and looking at the vaccination rate, how fast that's been happening in the United States ever since Donald Trump left. I think it's been it's been very impressive. Obviously, it's clear that he hasn't managed to do everything he has wanted to do, considering what the political situation is between the major parties over there, between the Democrats and the Republicans. But I think it's been quite exciting to see how things are feeling a bit more normal, like they were before Donald Trump. And you can hear more of our special series on Joe Biden's first 100 days in the White House on The Globalist throughout the rest of this week here on Monocle 24. Well, finally, here on the late edition, the City of London, the British capital's financial hub, has reported that it will transform a proportion of its office spaces into apartments in anticipation of the changes to how we work in the years following the coronavirus pandemic. Kat Hanna, the commentator on Urban Affairs, explained the move for us on today's edition of The Globalist. Personally, is really about boosting the residential population there. So again, you're, you know, you're having, I think, more resilience by making sure you do have that kind of day-to-day population in the city. So their plan is looking at at least 1,500 new homes by 2030. Just to give you a bit of context, kind of at the moment, or even pre-pandemic, you only had about 10,000 people living in the city of London. So it really is a very small residential population. And then the other part is also giving reasons for people to come to the City of London that aren't just about work. And it's worth saying, actually, you know, the City of London has been doing some really interesting work over the past few years, looking at how they, I guess, kind of broaden their offer. So, you know, thinking about culture, thinking about, you know, what their public spaces and open spaces are like. So they've done a lot around, for example, reducing traffic. So this is almost a kind of, you know, a turbocharging of that to think, you know, why would I actually go to the City of London at the weekend. The commentator on urban affairs, Kat Hanna, there speaking to us on The Globalist a little earlier today. Uh, Marcus, what do you make of this move by the City of London? And I suppose, what do you think it says about perhaps some of the permanence uh, to urban life, some of those changes that have been brought about by the past year? I don't think we should exaggerate the impact the pandemic has been having. There's been so many reports about people moving away from cities and, you know, there's people have been questioning whether the central London is is dead. But actually, you know, I've been working over here in recent weeks and looking around and I feel like central London is waking up. What's happening in, in the city of London? Well, 1,500 homes in the next nine years. If you compare that with the population of London, it's not a major, major change over there. 
but it's still interesting. I think it's 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 mostly about trying to activate and bring that part of London alive. I don't know. Many of our listeners probably have been in the city of London and have been walking around over there. I never go there personally over the weekends. There is there is nothing to do. It's actually quite depressing. There are no people on the streets. Most restaurants are closed, and I think it's very exciting what what the city of London is is planning now. So so the idea is that these fifteen hundred homes, they are former offices. They would be converted into homes, and the priority would be to get artists living over there for a bit cheaper rents, artists and musicians. So that would be like the first idea to of like bringing culture over there. And the city of London is also also planning of bringing more food over there, more restaurants, also bringing more cultural events over there. And and the idea is to bring that part of London alive so that it wouldn't just be for for bankers and financial experts it would be for everyone to go there and actually enjoy what london's got to offer so i think it's great city planning urban design but i i don't think we should go as far as to look at that this is an example of how people won't be working in central london anymore and it's just going to be a playground for people who have time off and Chris, I picked up a, a copy of the latest issue of Toronto's monthly city magazine, Toronto Life, a little earlier this week. And its cover headline was was equally upbeat as Marcus was describing these moves by the City of London. The whole issue is devoted pretty much to looking how downtown Toronto, which is also a financial hub, big, tall office towers, how that will spring back to life in new ways following the pandemic. And there are pretty similar conversations happening in, in certain cities across the US too, aren't there? Well, yes, I, I think they are. You know, this this discussion uh, that we can have about uh, uh, urban flight, if you will, leaving urban population centers is, I think, especially in the US, a bit of a misnomer, if, if only because, you know, living there and having lived here in Europe as well, most places in the US, even cities, are not that densely populated if you're talking about urban centers, but not, you know, the New Yorks, the San Francisco's, the Los Angeles, the Boston's of of the United States. So what you have seen, though, in the U.S., it's fair to say, is people leaving those bigger areas. New York, for example, has seen about a 10 percent drop uh, over the last year. That's quite significant. San Francisco has seen about an 8 percent drop. Uh, that's also quite significant. And it's more like they're moving uh, to other urban centers. And, and that's still something that's quite significant because in some ways it does mean, it can mean a complete change of life. Many people, for example, were actually profiling this in the next uh, entrepreneur's issue of, of Monocle magazine, are moving to Miami, for example. And that's becoming something of a, a hub for entrepreneurs, but also because of this sort of shift to remote working. They have a very strong, uh, to your point, Marcus, about London and the city of London. Miami has a very strong uh, arts and cultural scene. It's it's built this new, relatively new design district, for example, and that's where you're seeing a lot of people move to. So you're not seeing people leave urban centres, you're seeing them go to other urban centres that are perhaps more appealing. Just to continue what you said, I think it's interesting that I've been reading all these stories about how people are leaving urban centres and city life. And, you know, maybe I'm living in a bubble, but I don't know anyone who would want to leave cities and would want to move to the countryside, not even because of the pandemic. I will say anecdotally, just on that front, I have had some, I feel, here in Europe, a little bit more who will go to, like, Madeira in Portugal and really get away from life. I've had a few personal examples of that, perhaps. Now that you, you said it Marcus. this way, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Marcus Sippy and Chris Chermack, that's all we have time for for today's edition of The Late Edition. A big thanks to the two of you for being with us today. The programme today was edited in London by Sam Impey. A big thanks to her, as always, too. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But in the meantime, do be sure to listen to the brand new episode of The Entrepreneurs, which premiered here on Monocle 24 a short while ago. I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.